Section 19 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides through Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Saturday, 9th October. As in our present confinement anything that had even the name of curious was an object of attention, I proposed that Cole should show me the great stone mentioned in a former page as having been thrown by a giant to the top of a mountain. Dr. Johnson, who did not like to be left alone, said he would accompany us as far as riding was practicable. We ascended a part of the hill on horseback, and Cole and I scrambled up the rest. A servant held our horses, and Dr. Johnson placed himself on the ground with his back against a large fragment of rock. The wind being high, he let down the cocks of his hat and tied it with his handkerchief under his chin. While we were employed in examining the stone, which did not repay our trouble in getting to it, he amused himself with reading Gattaca on Lots and on the Christian Watch, a very learned book of the last age, which had been found in the garret of Cole's house, and which he said was a treasure here. When we descried him from above, he had a most eremitical appearance, and on our return told us he had been so much engaged by Gattaca that he had never missed us. His avidity for variety of books while we were in Col was frequently expressed, and he often complained that so few were within his reach, upon which I observed to him that it was strange he should complain of want of books when he could at any time make such good ones. We next proceeded to the lead mine. In our way we came to a strand of some extent where we were glad to take a gallop in which my learned friend joined with great alacrity. Dr. Johnson mounted on a large bay mare without shoes and followed by a foal which had some difficulty in keeping up with him was a singular spectacle. After examining the mine we returned through a very uncouth district full of sand hills down which, though apparent precipices, our horses carried us with safety, the sand always gently sliding away from their feet. Vestiges of houses were pointed out to us, which Col and two others who had joined us asserted had been overwhelmed with sand blown over them. But on going close to one of them, Dr. Johnson showed the absurdity of the notion by remarking that it was evidently only a house abandoned, the stones of which have been taken away for other purposes, for the large stones, which form the lower part of the walls, were still standing higher than the sand. If they were not blown over, it was clear nothing higher than they could be blown over. This was quite convincing to me, but it made not the least impression on Col and the others, who were not to be argued out of a highland tradition. We did not sit down to dinner till between six and seven, we lived plentifully here, and had a true welcome. In such a season good firing was of no small importance. The peats were excellent, and burned cheerfully. Those at Dunvegan, which were damp, Dr. Johnson called a sullen fuel. Here a Scottish phrase was singularly applied to him, one of the company having remarked that he had gone out on a stormy evening and brought in a supply of peats from the stack. Old Mr. McSwain said, that was main honest. Blenheim being occasionally mentioned, he told me he had never seen it. He had not gone formerly, and he would not go now, just as a common spectator, for his money. 
he would not put it in the power of some man about the Duke of Marlborough to say, Johnson was here, I knew him, but I took no notice of him. He said he should be very glad to see it, if properly invited, which in all probability would never be the case, as it was not worth his while to seek for it. I observed that he might be easily introduced there by a common friend of ours, nearly related to the Duke. He answered with an uncommon attention to delicacy of feeling, I doubt whether our friend be on such a footing with the Duke as to carry anybody there, and I would not give him the uneasiness of seeing that I knew he was not, or even of being himself reminded of it. Sunday, 10th October. There was this day the most terrible storm of wind and rain that I ever remember. It made such an awful impression on us all as to produce for some time a kind of dismal quietness in the house. The day was passed without much conversation, only upon my observing that there must be something bad in a man's mind who does not like to give leases to his tenants, but wishes to keep them in a perpetual wretched dependence on his will. Dr. Johnson said, "'You are right.' It is a man's duty to extend comfort and security among as many people as he can. He should not wish to have his tenants mere ephemerae, mere beings of an hour. Boswell. But, sir, if they have leases, is there not some danger that they may grow insolent? I remember you yourself once told me an English tenant was so independent that if provoked he would throw his rent at his landlord. Johnson. Depend upon it, sir. It is the landlord's own fault if it is thrown at him. A man may always keep his tenants in dependence enough, though they have leases. He must be a good tenant indeed, who will not fall behind in his rent, if his landlord will let him. And if he does fall behind, his landlord has him at his mercy. Indeed, the poor man is always much at the mercy of the rich, no matter whether landlord or tenant. If the tenant lets his landlord have a little rent beforehand, or has lent him money, then the landlord is in his power. There cannot be a greater man than a tenant who has lent money to his landlord, for he has under subjection the very man to whom he should be subjected. Monday, 11th October We had some days ago engaged the Campbelltown vessel to carry us to Mull from the harbour where she lay. The morning was fine, and the wind fair and moderate, so we hoped at length to get away. Mrs. McSwain, who officiated as our landlady here, had never been on the mainland. On hearing this, Dr. Johnson said to me before her, That is rather being behindhand with life. I would at least go and see Glenaig. Boswell, you yourself, sir, have never seen till now anything but your native Ireland. Johnson, but, sir, by seeing London, I have seen as much of life as the world can show. Boswell, you have not seen Peking. Johnson, what is Peking? Ten thousand Londoners would drive all the people of Peking. They would drive them like deer. He set out about eleven for the harbour, but before we reached it, so violent a storm came on that we were obliged again to take shelter in the house of Captain Maclean, where we dined and passed the night. Tuesday, 12th October After breakfast we made a second attempt to get to the harbour, but another storm soon convinced us that it would be in vain. Captain Maclean's house being in some confusion, 
on account of Mrs. Maclean being expected to lie in, we resolved to go to Mr. McSwain's, where we arrived very wet, fatigued and hungry. In this situation we were somewhat disconcerted by being told that we should have no dinner till late in the evening, but should have tea in the meantime. Dr. Johnson opposed this arrangement, but they persisted, and he took the tea very readily. He said to me afterwards, "'You must consider, sir, a dinner here is a matter of great consequence. It is a thing to be first planned, and then executed. I suppose the mutton was brought some miles off, from some place where they knew there was a sheep killed.' Talking of the good people with whom we were, he said, Life has not got at all forward by a generation in McSwain's family, for the son is exactly formed upon the father. What the father says, the son says, and what the father looks, the son looks. There being little conversation tonight, I must endeavour to recollect what I may have omitted on former occasions. When I boasted in Rasi of my independency of spirit, and that I could not be bribed, he said, Yes, you may be bribed by flattery. At the Reverend Mr. Maclean's, Dr. Johnson asked him if the people of Col had any superstitions. He said no. The cutting peats at the increase of the moon was mentioned as one, but he would not allow it, saying it was not a superstition but a whim. Dr. Johnson would not admit the distinction. There were many superstitions, he maintained, not connected with religion, and this was one of them. On Monday we had a dispute at the captain's, where the sand-hills could be fixed down by art. Dr. Johnson said, How the devil can you do it? But instantly corrected himself, How can you do it? I never before heard him use a phrase of that nature. He has particularities which it is impossible to explain. He never wears a nightcap, as I have already mentioned, but he puts a handkerchief on his head in the night. The day that we left Talisker, he bade us ride on. He then turned the head of his horse back towards Talisker, stopped for some time, then wheeled round to the same direction with ours, and then came briskly after us. He sets open a window in the coldest day or night, and stands before it. It may do with his constitution, but most people amongst whom I am one would say with the frogs in the fable, this may be sport to you, but it is death to us. It is in vain to try to find a meaning in every one of his particularities, which, I suppose, are mere habits, contracted by chance, of which every man has some that are more or less remarkable. His speaking to himself, or rather repeating, is a common habit with studious men accustomed to deep thinking, and in consequence of their being thus rapt, they will even laugh by themselves if the subject which they are musing on is a merry one. Dr. Johnson is often uttering pious ejaculations when he appears to be talking to himself, for sometimes his voice grows stronger, and parts of the Lord's Prayer are heard. I have sat beside him with more than ordinary reverence on such occasions. In our tour I observed that he was disgusted whenever he met with coarse manners. He said to me, I know not how it is, but I cannot bear low life, and I find others, who have as good a right as I to be fastidious, bear it better, by having mixed more with different sorts of men. You would think that I have mixed pretty well, too. 
He read this day a good deal of my journal, written in a small book, with which he had supplied me, and was pleased, for he said, I wish thy books were twice as big. He helped me to fill up blanks which I had left in first writing it, when I was not quite sure of what he had said, and he corrected any mistakes that I had made. They call me a scholar, said he, and yet how very little literature there is in my conversation. Boswell, that, sir, must be according to your company. You would not give literature to those who cannot taste it. Stay till we meet Lord Elibank. We had at last a good dinner, or rather supper, and were very well satisfied with our entertainment. Wednesday, 13th October. Cole called me up with intelligence that it was a good day for a passage to Mull, and just as we rose, a sailor from the vessel arrived for us. We got all ready with dispatch. Dr. Johnson was displeased at my bustling and walking quickly up and down. He said, It does not hasten us a bit. It is getting on horseback in a ship. All boys do it, and you are longer a boy than others. He himself has no alertness, or whatever it may be called, so he may dislike it as odorunt hilarum tristes. Before we reached the harbour, the wind grew high again. However, the small boat was waiting and took us on board. We remained for some time in uncertainty what to do. At last it was determined that as a good part of the day was over, and it was dangerous to be at sea at night in such a vessel and such weather, we should not sail till the morning tide, when the wind would probably be more gentle. We resolved not to go ashore again, but lie here in readiness. Dr. Johnson and I had each a bed in the cabin. Cole sat at the fire in the forecastle with the captain and Joseph and the rest. I eat some dry oatmeal, of which I found a barrel in the cabin. I had not done this since I was a boy. Dr. Johnson owned that he too was fond of it when a boy, a circumstance which I was highly pleased to hear from him, as it gave me an opportunity of observing that notwithstanding his joke on the article of oats, he was himself a proof that this kind of food was not peculiar to the people of Scotland. Thursday, 14th October When Dr. Johnson awaked this morning, he called Lanky, having, I suppose, been thinking of Langton, but corrected himself instantly and cried, Bozzy! He has a way of contracting the names of his friends. Goldsmith feels himself so important now as to be displeased at it. I remember one day when Tom Davis was telling that, Dr. Johnson said, We are all in labour for a name to Goldie's play. Goldsmith cried, I have often desired him not to call me Goldie. Between six and seven we hauled our anchor and set sail with a fair breeze, and after a pleasant voyage we got safely and agreeably into the harbour of Tobermory, before the wind rose, which it always has done, for some days about noon. Tobermory is an excellent harbour. An island lies before it, and it is surrounded by a hilly theatre. The island is too low, otherwise this would be quite a secure port, but the island not being a sufficient protection, some storms blow very hard here. Not long ago, fifteen vessels were blown from their moorings. There are sometimes sixty or seventy sail here. Today there were twelve or fourteen vessels. 
To see such a fleet was the next thing to seeing a town. The vessels were from different places, Clyde, Campbelltown, Newcastle, etc. One was returning to Lancaster from Hamburg. After having been shut up so long in Col, the sight of such an assemblage of moving habitations, containing such a variety of people engaged in different pursuits, gave me much gaiety of spirits. When we had landed, Dr. Johnson said, Boswell is now all alive. He is like Antaeus. He gets new vigour whenever he touches the ground. I went to the top of a hill fronting the harbour, from whence I had a good view of it. We had here a tolerable inn. Dr. Johnson had owned to me this morning that he was out of humour. Indeed, he showed it a good deal in the ship, for when I was expressing my joy on the prospect of our landing in Mull, he said he had no joy when he recollected that it would be five days before he should get to the mainland. I was afraid he would now take a sudden resolution to give up seeing Ilkenkoil. A dish of tea and some good bread and butter did him service, and his bad humour went off. I told him that I was diverted to hear all the people whom we had visited in our tour say, "'Honest man, he's pleased with everything, he's always content.' "'Little do they know,' said I. He laughed and said, "'You rogue!' We sent to hire horses to carry us across the island of Mull to the shore opposite to Inch Kenneth, the residence of Sir Alan Maclean, uncle to young Cole, and chief of the Maclean's, to whose house we intended to go the next day. Our friend Cole went to visit his aunt, the wife of Dr Alexander Maclean, a physician, who lives about a mile from Tobermory. Dr Johnson and I sat by ourselves at the inn and talked a good deal. I told him that I had found in Leandro Alberti's description of Italy much of what Addison had given us in his remarks. He said, The collection of passages from the classics has been made by another Italian. It is, however, impossible to detect a man as a plagiary in such a case, because all who set about making such a collection must find the same passages. But if you find the same applications in another book, then Addison's learning in his remarks tumbles down. It is a tedious book and if it were not attached to Addison's previous reputation, one would not think much of it. Had he written nothing else, his name would not have lived. Addison does not seem to have gone deep in Italian literature. He shows nothing of it in his subsequent writings. He shows a great deal of French learning. There is perhaps more knowledge circulated in the French language than any other. There is more original knowledge in English. But the French, said I, have the art of accommodating literature. Johnson, yes, sir, we have no such book as Moreri's Dictionary. Boswell, there ain't are good. Johnson, a few of them are good, but we have one book of that kind better than any of them. Selden's Table Talk. As to original literature, the French have a couple of tragic poets who go round the world, Racine and Cornet, and one comic poet, Molière. Boswell, they have Fenelon. Johnson, why, sir, Telemachus is pretty well. Boswell, and Voltaire, sir. Johnson, he has not stood his trial yet, and what makes Voltaire chiefly circulate is collection, such as his universal history. Boswell, what do you say to the Bishop of Meaux? Johnson, 
Sir, nobody reads him. He would not allow Massillon and Bourdaloue to go round the world. In general, however, he gave the French much praise for their industry. He asked me whether he had mentioned in any of the papers of the Rambler the description in Virgil of the entrance into hell with an application to the press. For, said he, I do not much remember them. I told him no, upon which he repeated it, vestibulum ante ipsum primisquin faucibus orci, luctus et ultrites possueri cubilia curae, palentesqui habitant morbi, tritisqui senectus, et metus et malusuada farmes et turpis agestus, terribiles visu formae, lethumque laborque. Now, said he, almost all these apply exactly to an author, all these are the concomitants of a printing-house. I proposed to him to dictate an essay on it, and offered to write it. He said he would not do it then, but perhaps would write one at some future period. The Sunday evening that we sat by ourselves at Aberdeen, I asked him several particulars of his early years, which he readily told me, and I wrote them down before him. This day I proceeded in my inquiries, also writing them in his presence. I have them on detached sheets. I shall collect authentic materials for the life of Samuel Johnson, LLD, and if I survive him, I shall be one who will most faithfully do honour to his memory. I have now a vast treasure of his conversation at different times, since the year of 1762, when I first obtained his acquaintance and by assiduous inquiry I can make up for not knowing him sooner. A Newcastle shipmaster, who happened to be in the house, intruded himself upon us. He was much in liquor, and talked nonsense about his being a man for Wilkes and Liberty, and against the ministry. Dr. Johnson was angry that a fellow should come into our company who was fit for no company. He left us soon. Cole returned from his aunt and told us she insisted that we should come to her house that night. He introduced to us Mr. Campbell, the Duke of Argyle's factor in Tyrie. He was a genteel, agreeable man. He was going to Inverary and promised to put letters into the post office for us. I now found that Dr. Johnson's desire to get on the mainland arose from his anxiety to have an opportunity of conveying letters to his friends. After dinner, we proceeded to Dr. Maclean's, which was about a mile from our inn. He was not at home, but we were received by his lady and daughter, who entertained us so well that Dr. Johnson seemed quite happy. When we had supped, he asked me to give him some paper to write letters. I begged he would write short ones and not expatiate, as we ought to set off early. He was irritated by this and said, "'What must be done must be done.' The thing is past a joke. Nay, sir, said I, write as much as you please, but do not blame me if we are kept six days before we get to the mainland. You are very impatient in the morning, but no sooner do you find yourself in good quarters than you forget that you are to move. I got him paper enough, and we parted in good humour. Let me now recollect whatever particulars I have omitted. In the morning I said to him before we landed at Tobermory, We shall see Dr. Maclean, who has written the history of the Macleans. Johnson, 
I have no great patience to stay to hear the history of the Maclean's. I would rather hear the history of the Thrales. When on Marl I said, Well, sir, this is the fourth of the Hebrides that we have been upon. Johnson, Nay, we cannot boast of the number we have seen. We thought we should see many more. We thought of sailing about easily from island to island, and so we should, had we come at a better season. But we, being wise men, thought it would be summer all the year where we were. However, sir, we have seen enough to give us a pretty good notion of the system in insular life. Let me not forget that he sometimes amused himself with very slight reading, from which, however, his conversation showed that he contrived to extract some benefit. At Captain Maclean's he read a good deal in The Charmer, a collection of songs. End of section 19